Uh, we've got a lot left to do in Romans chapter 8, and uh, you know, I want to get back into that. But I, I felt like that we really needed to take this uh, uh, section out and really focus on it, since it fit in what we were doing in Romans 8 anyhow. I didn't want to have to come back and do it later. And, uh, but now you have a good foundation on, on how to use uh, biblical principles. I think it's probably one of the best studies that we ever have ever taken, especially the one we talked about last week, and yet how do you make one better than the other? Really helping you understand how the whole thing works together in your life. And you know, you always want to remember that biblical principles are the key to making the right decisions in your life. And uh, there's many influences in our life. You're going to find that people uh, get other people in their lives or they get circumstances in their life and with those relationships or circumstances come come attitudes and influences and they are, it's, before you know it it pulls you from where maybe you need to be to where you don't need to be and Bible principles are the key to keep making the right decisions you you always focus on what the Bible says and, and stay with it in that aspect in your life and now we've seen that the right decisions really are the key to you fulfilling God's will and God's plan for your life. We now know in a better way that God, if you're saved this morning, God has something that He wants you to be able to accomplish in your life. And of course, um, that is the key to the judgment seat of Christ, of getting to the point where you have everything that God wants you to have. And now today I want to, in our study, I want to I kind of end it in a, in a way that, uh, that I thought that uh, would be appropriate in doing it. I want to talk to you about, oh, I didn't even count them up, maybe 25 or 30, maybe even more than that, of basic principles that I use in my own personal life and certainly uh, in what I do. I always try not only to make my own personal decisions by biblical principles, but also the ones that concerning the ministry of this church. You know, leadership, and that's what I'm always striving to build. I think any pastor who, who does not see and understand that his main function and his main job is to, is to look through his congregation for any young man or any young lady that even has a minuscule of leadership ability and then fan that fire, stoke that fire and bring out of them everything that, that uh, you can do to make that person profitable uh, for the ministry that you're trying to accomplish. You find that's what Paul did in the churches that he ministered to and the churches that he had written to. You find him dealing with certain people, naming them by name and really uh, pouring himself into those people uh, because of the fact that he sees in them uh, the great ability to uh, do something for the Lord. But in leadership, you have to lead from the top down. In the military, it's called chain of command. Uh, you have to lead by not only example, but also by example. Now that's what separates Bible leadership in churches from any other area of leadership. If you're in the military, you really don't care if the guy who's your platoon sergeant, or maybe your, your, uh, your company commander, you don't really care what he does in his own private life. You don't care if he's an alcoholic, you don't care if he's a gambler, you really don't care about what he does with his life as long as he knows how to keep you alive when everything hits the fan and, uh, and he, knows how to, he knows how to get you home safely. Because he leads by example. And in the military, they lead by example. Chain of command. Leadership in the military is taking men and women who, 
who men and people are willing to follow. And you could read many, many biographies down through the history of any war where there were men that uh, their men who followed them would follow them anywhere simply because they had proven themselves as leaders. And men knew that even though that many times they were in perilous situations, that that man that they were following was the best hope for them to get back home in any given situation. But in Christianity, we can't do just that, see? Christianity is different, chain of command. It's different in leadership in, in churches than it is in any other aspect because not only do, does leadership have to lead by example, that's what you do, but it also has to lead by example. And the difference between example and sample is simply an example is something that you do, but an example is something that you are. And that's the difference between the world's kind of leadership and God's kind of leadership. It isn't enough that you're just uh, a good leader. Uh, you have to, and, and you do, uh, you know, you do what a leader should do. It's more of that in God's church, because God's church, you have, to, you have to live the principles as much as lead by the principles. And this is where it fails many, many times in dealing with people. And yet I say to you that nobody is perfect. And you've heard me say this over and over again because you're not going to find anybody in any role of leadership or any pastor in any leadership in any ministry that's perfect. Perfection is not what you look for, but rather consistency is, consistency with the biblical principles. Consistency in your life and my life of the examples and the examples bring about what every leader needs, and that's credibility. You're not a leader because you say, I am a leader. You're not a leader because you have a little piece of paper that says you're a leader. You're not a leader because you have a, you have a name tag that says, I'm a leader. You're a leader because people have credibil- you have credibility with the people that you try to lead. And uh, Bible principles in your life is the way to do that. And it's not enough simply to be able to lay out the Bible. You have to also be able to live out the Bible. And that's really the key, and you do that through the principles. The greatest influence you'll have for Christ will not be what you say or even what you do, but rather how you live your personal life in accordance with biblical principles. I want to start today by giving you two great principles. We're going to start with this, and we're going to end with this, and then it'll be like a sandwich in between. We'll put the meat in it. This is the bread. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 and 8. And, I, and I, you don't care how you do this. If you want to look it up, fine. If you want to just sit back and try to enjoy it, fine. And then get the tape, whatever. I don't care. But Romans chapter 14, verse 7 and 8 is a great principle. It says this. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, uh, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Now that's one of the greatest single principles that you'll ever commit in your heart. And that's a principle that as a child of God you never want to forget because that principle simply says there's always somebody watching your life. Once you take Christ as your personal Savior, from that point on, the Bible says you're not your own. You're now bought with a price. And whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, once you declare yourself to be a child of God, people are now watching your life. You You don't have a private life anymore. You now come to the point where you are to be an ambassador for Christ. You're to be a showcase for Christ. You're to be an example of the principles because there's always somebody going to be watching your life. And that is the very thing that God will do and take in your life to reach somebody else for Christ. 
It won't be necessarily what you say. It won't be necessarily what, you, what ministry you're involved in. But it will simply be what people see in your life when you don't know they're watching. That is the number one thing that you want to always look out for and always remember. Along with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which is another great verse. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Now I want you to see that verse. That verse tells you very clearly and plainly that nobody is going out telling anybody they're a Christian. That verse says that somebody sees in your life the reason why you are the way you are and sees the difference in your life. I've told you before that one of the great areas in your life that God teaches you the Bible is the area of contrast. Things that are here versus things that are over here. Light versus darkness. Heaven versus hell. Good versus evil. Contrast is one of the absolutely greatest ways that God teaches you the Bible. It's also one of the greatest ways that God uses your life in an influence in other people's lives. We are under the false assumption, and I know many of you witness, and I commend you for that, and many of you carry your Bibles to work, and many of you, during your lunch hour, you study your Bible, and people see all of that, and I, and I appreciate that. I, I really do. I think that's good. And uh, I'm not making, what I'm about to say is not an indictment on anybody, because I don't, I don't know, for the most part, you know, what people look at you and what they think. But I want to tell you this. It's not those times that people will say, that's a person's a Christian. It'll be the times when you're faced with something that studying your Bible at lunch really pays off in the crunch someplace over here. It'll be the time that when, when, nobody's, when you don't think anybody's watching your life and you're faced with some issue that you have to, you have to your response or your reaction to it is going to speak volumes much more than anything that you did by, by sitting down at a lunch table and opening up your Bible or, or witnessing to somebody. Credibility is something that doesn't come because you just open up a Bible or even carry one. We believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. Yes, we do. And I believe it's the absolute infallible Word of God. Yes, I do. But you know what? I've saw, some of the, the, I've saw some of the biggest doofuses that you ever saw in your life do more harm and more damage to the Christianity and the cause of Christ who believe everything that I believe about the Bible and walked around carrying a 25-pound King James Bible. The problem was they could lay out the Bible, but they could not live out the Bible. And the one without the other is a waste of time. Why? Because there's always somebody watching your life and the what you want to do, you always want to be ready. You want to be ready to give an answer to every man that is going to ask you the reason of why you are the way you are in relationship to a world that is totally opposite. Contrast. And just as the Bible principles make decisions easy, we talked about that before, it shows you the bottom line, you know, no smoke, no confusion, no emotion. It shows you clearly what you have to do based on the Bible. It also clearly shows you, once you know how to use them in Christianity, what's real and what isn't real. And these today would be great, and I don't know how far we'll get. I'm going to have to jump through here and try to get all these done, but uh, some of them I want to spend more time on than others. But these would be great on 3 by 5 card. John, we gave you the 90 that John put together, John and Joe, and if you, these, those would be great on 3 by 5 cards, and these would be great too. And some of you will find these things will work for you, some of you say, well, maybe that's not what I'm at right now. All I can tell you is this. 
These are the things that, these are some of the ones that I go by most in my life. I use these in areas of ministry, area of my own personal life, and area of dealing with people. In fact, I've broken them down in, into those sections. I've broken them down into three categories. I did it for the ease of remembering them and for laying them out. I follow these and use these, uh, and uh, you, if you would ever go through my Bible, you would find that every principle that I found that I use, uh, I have taken a little one of those red grease pens we have back there, and I've marked every one in a little square. When I go through my Bible and I see that square, I know that's a principle. And uh, if you look at my Bible, it's, uh, there's more probably marked uh, with red squares in the book of Proverbs, anyhow, than there are not marked, but it's all through the Bible. Now, these are powerful one-liners. I told you when we started that, that principles come in the form of whole books. I gave you some examples of that. Chapters, I gave you some examples of that. Passages, two or four verses, I gave you some examples of that. And then I said, standalone verses. Most of them come from my favorite book in the Bible, and that would be the book of Proverbs. Now, for me, and you've heard me say this before, the book of Proverbs, without a doubt, my greatest, my greatest book of the Bible for me, and my greatest challenge. If there was ever one book that I could have complete, total recall on, that I would have everything at my fingertips that I could just remember, it would be the book of Proverbs. I think one of the greatest things that I've ever saw in the Bible, and we talked about this Thursday night, is found in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, because if you read that, it says there that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. 3,000 Proverbs. And I told you Thursday night, the best I can count them up, and I may be off on this because it's hard to, maybe something I would say isn't a proverb, somebody else would, but the best I could come up with is 700 in the book of Proverbs. And I told you that that means that you didn't get all that, uh, and I'll tell you something else, you know what, we went through the Song of Solomon on New Year's Eve, remember that? Well, the Bible says in the same passage that a song of, song of, uh, that he had, he had uh, 1,005 songs. You didn't get all of that in the book of Song of Solomon. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God handpicked out of everything that Solomon said. And Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. God handpicked out of that the Proverbs that he gave me and the Song of Solomon that he gave me, the songs that he gave me to give me everything that I needed. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 is your next principle. And this is something you want to remember forever in connection with the book of Proverbs. For it says in verse 23, keep thy heart with all diligence. Why is that? For out of it, your heart, are the issues of life. You see, the book of Proverbs is aimed at a man's heart. For it's in our heart that's the key to our relationship with God. The book of Proverbs shows us how to keep your heart right with God because out of it is going to come every issue in life that you and I are going to have to deal with. Every issue that we face in our lives will start in our heart. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The Bible talks about that when an issue comes into my life, in my heart, I think about it. I think how I'm going to deal with it. Then I decide in my heart if I'm going to apply the Bible principles or I'm not going to apply the Bible principles. And you know what? Life goes on up or down based on that concept, but it's just that simple. The issues of our lives, the things that we deal with, will always start in our heart. Now, I, the category I put these in are simply people, life in general, and then the world that I live in. 
I also told you Thursday night, we talked about, the, somebody asked a great question out of the book of Proverbs. And, and I, I, we got into that early part of that book, and, uh, and I, I showed you that, uh, that how, what, what ought to be your goal in your life out of the book of Proverbs. I showed you how that if you're ever going to be used of God, you're kidding yourself, and you're never going to get there if you don't have the process by which God shows you uh, in the book of Proverbs. And I told you that the two things that come from understanding the book of Proverbs is discernment and discretion. Discernment and discretion. Discernment is being able to see the situation as it appears, uh, or as it really is, excuse me, not as it appears. That's what discernment is. When you can see something that everybody else sees this way, and you discern it from the Bible standpoint, you have discernment. I can't tell you how that important that is in dealing with people. I can't tell you how important that is in building relationships in your life. Because you're going to find in Christianity, just like the world, there's going to be God's people that are going to lead you astray and are going to get you messed up. And, uh, and you've got to be able to have the discernment to know, you know, what, who, you're going to, who you're going to be with or who you're going to hang out with or whatever uh, the point may be. You're going to have to use discernment in that. We get the idea that, that because everybody, somebody says they're a Christian, that just makes them great. And that's obviously not true if you've been around in the world as a saved person for any length of time. That is simply not true. Discernment is the ability to see through God's wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Discernment is the ability to see any circumstance as it really is. Then discretion. Discretion is the ability to take the wisdom that you have and apply it to that circumstance in the right format. And that is the key to everything that you and I have to do. And the answer to that is the principles that we're going to look at. Let's start with people. Now, one of the greatest principles on why people, God's people, struggle in their walk with God. All my life as a Christian, and I'm going to give a little personal thing on some of these. All my life as a pastor, I should say, once I started dealing with people, I'd watch people get saved. And I'd watch people come to the place where uh, they'd come to church for a while, they'd get involved for just a little bit, and then they, they, would, they, would, they would be gone and you'd never see them again. Now, I understand that much of that today uh, has to do with the fact that in the day and age that we live in, that most people probably today don't really get saved. I think personally, you know, I, I was talking to a guy last week, and he was looking for all these examples that are going on in the world today, how that... Uh, the devil would mask the rapture of the church, that how you're going to explain hundreds of millions of people disappearing just like that. And he was looking at some of the theories that are out there that the world's putting out now and thinking, and, and, and he went on and talking about how that he thought that maybe this would, would mask the rapture. And I look back at him and I say, you know what my personal position is? I don't think when the rapture took place this morning there'd be that many people that go that would ever be missed. That's my stand on it. I'm sorry. I'm just where I'm at. I believe there's so much phoniness going on in Christianity today, and I believe there's so many people who make emotional decisions that are not based on the pure principles of the Word of God that they can grasp at that point in their life. And I think that people who win people to Christ are so inept at it, so at a disadvantage at it, that they don't know what to look for, they don't know what to talk about, they don't know how to ask the right questions, 
And I believe as sure as I'm standing here that most people that get saved probably don't really get saved. And I, I tell you, I, I, that's why I'm so careful with the people that I teach how to win somebody to Christ. And I think that after a person does get saved, I think the thing that happens in their life, it, it destroys them. I mean, let's face it. We know two things for sure. One, the devil doesn't want you to get saved. He wants to get you in hell. Okay, so you get saved. That plan goes out the window. The second plan then is he, now that he knows you'll never go to hell, he does know that if he can keep you from ever plugging in and being everything that God wants you to be, you may never go to hell yourself, but a lot of other people will go to hell because you won't get on board and do what God wants you to do. So he plays the odds. He's not, he's not, he's not stupid with the thing. And that's why uh, this next principle found in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, is the answer to many, many times why people don't make it. And it's through association. You know what it says? It says this, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Now that, that is so simple, but it's absolutely profound. You are, this morning, who you hang out with. I don't know what else to tell you. And if you hang out with wise men, and last Thursday night, for those of you that bothered to come, we defined what a wise man is in the book of Proverbs, didn't we? Gave you nine things. Somebody says, well, I hang out with wise people. Do you? I didn't say wise guys. I said a wise man. You say, well, I hang out with wise people. Do you? Do you even know the nine principles that the Bible says that make a wise man? How do you hang out with somebody and think they're, when you don't even know what the Bible defines a wise man as? The Bible simply says, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. You will be who you hang out with. People will either lift you up or people will drag you down. And the problem is many, many times when a man or a woman gets saved, they, get, they, don't, make the, they don't make the cut with the ties of the people that were dragging them down. And many times it's, it's, it's for a good reason. It's not, it won't work, but it's a good reason. Many times they feel, well, I want to win that person to Christ, or I want to have an influence in that person to Christ. I guarantee you, when you first get saved, you won't have any influence in anybody's life, but everybody will have an influence in your life. There is a process, if you find yourself in that place, to win those people to Christ. But it isn't you hanging out with them still, so you can still run with them, so you think in your mind that if I just stay with them in time, I'll bring them to church. No, just the opposite will happen. In time, you'll quit coming to church. You know why? The principle. The principle. My suggestion to you, if you really want to do something for God in your life, and you're just a young Christian, find the men and women in this church that are doing it cleaner and better and by the biblical principles and line yourself up with them. You say, now why would you say that? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. The book did. The Bible clearly says that, that he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And don't you think for a moment that there aren't fools that are saved people just like there are fools that are unsaved people. People we will lift you up and they will drag you down. And you have to break that cycle in your life when you get saved. And you have to make new friends. I would give any young Christian this advice. If you just got saved and you really want a fair shot at this thing, here's what I'd tell you to do. 
And I say this to anybody in any church, anytime, has nothing to do with this church, verse that goes with the principle. You know what I do? Find out, find out, take the time, find out where the biblical action is going on in that church. Find out where the ministry is, where the rubber meets the road. I'm not talking about the people who talk it but don't live it. I'm talking about find out where the action is. Find out where the bullets are zinging over the heads. Find out where the real combat is going on and then dig a foxhole right in that perimeter and dig in with them. That's the way you do it. It's just that simple. When I first got saved in my life, God gave me that principle very early in life. I saw in the church back home with my father and the Lord Mel Sabaka, just like any church. He had a college and career class of three or four hundred people. In that church, there were just like people like I talked about last week. People who were ministering, people who wanted to learn to minister, that would be me, and the people who cared nothing about ministry. And I had a choice just like you. I wanted to minister. And God saved me, I am sure, from making more a bigger mess out of my life than I have. And he, he let me have that verse to show me that, you know what? You want to get, you want to get where God wants you to be, then find out the people in that college class that were doing the job, that were, that were living it in every aspect, and hook yourself up to them. That's what I did. Right now, I don't have the time this morning, but I can list you four, five, six, seven, eight names of young men in my life back then who knew more about it than I ever did, who took me under their wing and helped me establish myself. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Now here's another good one. In the course of time, in, in you get plugged in, and in the course of time, let me tell you something. In dealing in ministry, you're going to make enemies. There are no Mr. Cleans in the ministry if you do it right. There might be Mr. Clean in the aspect of between you and God, but when every time you're going to have truth, I told you, when you start coming down in Genesis chapter 1, you don't read three or four verses before you find that God divides. And I'm telling you right now, if you're going to, now you may, be a, you may be a spineless jellyfish all your life in Christianity, and you may get through life and not have any enemies at all. But let me tell you something. You know it and I know it if you know anything about the Bible. If you're going to stand for the truth, if you're going to take a stand for the truth and you're going to let God have your life, show me one man in the Bible that wasn't hated because of the fact that he took a stand. Just give me one. Just give me one. I mean, you cannot go anywhere. I mean, they hated Paul. They hated John. They hated Moses. They hated David. They hated Abraham. There isn't a man in the Bible who did not decide to dig a hole and hold the line and stay with truth and the principles that didn't have problems. No, that's just the way it works. In the course of time, you're going to make enemies in ministry because God divides. And you will find yourself in a predicament where people will, will trash you behind your back. You will find people who will say one thing to your face and say something else behind your back. It just goes with the territory. It just goes with the territory. And you're going to find that, uh, uh, that, that the way you deal with it and I, I got I to gotta tell you, years ago, when I was just a young guy, and I was watching what my father and the Lord did, here's a guy who, who, he had been in trouble so much for standing for the truth that he had gotten hard-boiled. I mean, he was just, I mean, he was just, he was tough as nails. And it always bothered me that when, 
you know, when somebody said something about him or somebody uh, uh, tried to hurt him in some way or some shape, some form, I always wanted to defend him because he was my daddy in the Lord. And I never understood why he never retaliated. I never understood. I mean, I mean, the bottom line was, you know, I mean, somebody says something out there behind your back. Don't you think that this is a bigger forum than that? You have publicly every Sunday, you can say whatever you want to say. You can justify yourself. You can clear yourself. You can get up and you can, you can, you can defend yourself. I mean, you got the ultimate media to be able to do that. But he never did that. He never did that. This great principle is found in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28. It says, The heart of the righteous studieth the answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. You know what he told me? And I learned this. He says, You never defend yourself publicly. He says, there may be some time you have to, but in the general sense of things, you never, never, never defend yourself. And I asked him, I saw him go through something one time, and I, and I asked him, I said, I said, no, 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 why is that? And he said, don't you remember reading the book of Job? Job was a righteous man. Job was a man who, who, who loved God and eschewed evil. When did Job sin? You know when Job's sin came in? He, three friends showed up and began to accuse him of something that he didn't do. And Job got so busy defending himself that that's where he sinned. You want to know what the sin of Job was? The sin of Job was he was so busy defending himself before the three guys, he wound up becoming self-righteous himself. The old man that taught me said, you never defend yourself. He said, you know why that is? He said, because the greatest defense against slander is the truth. He told me Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11, The mouth of the righteous man is a well of life, but violence cometh the mouth of the wicked. He gave me Proverbs 25, 28, which says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And boy, I began to look at that and I began to see, he told me, he says, what you do, he says, you just stay with teaching the truth. You stay with teaching the truth. You stay with what, don't get hasty, don't get caught up, don't get your emotions in it, don't take it personal. He says, you study the answer. You stay in that book, you keep preaching the truth, and what will happen with the wicked will identify himself to everybody who's paying attention because his life will go against the principles. And I thought to myself, man, you know, I've got to tell you, that's probably the hardest thing to do, but man, what an incredible concept. When you're faced with an issue, just as he was faced with an issue, let me give you some good advice. And here's what he told me. And I asked him, I said, why don't you get up and clobber these guys? These guys are saying all this stuff. They're calling you a cult. They're calling you this. It's over the Bible. It's over, they're attacking your character. Why don't you get up? You are a junkyard dog with a long chain. Why don't you get up and deal with that issue? You know what he told me? He said, I'll tell you why I don't. And he remembered this. He said, you know what? You never make the issue between you and them. Because the moment you make the issue between you and them, now it's a personal thing. 
He says, what you always want to do is never make the issue between you and them, but make the issue between them and the Bible. And that's why you don't say anything. You just keep preaching the book. You keep laying out the principles. You keep doing what you've done all your life and let the issue be between them and the book. They attack you, you don't attack them. That would make you just like them. The Bible already told you that that's not what the righteous does. He's quiet and he keeps preaching what the principles say in truth and the rest of it takes care of itself. You know, there's a great principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. And he also gave me this. It says in that passage, it says, For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. And he showed me. He said, you know what that verse says? We think heresy is a bad thing because heresy confuses people. And we think heretics are bad people. And he says the truth of the matter is what Paul said there, he says that they are necessary. You know why heresy and heretics are necessary? Because they show anybody who's using the Bible and Bible principles who's approved of God and who's not. In other words, you've got to have something phony to be able to identify the real thing. I talked to a guy one time that I had met at, a, at, a, at one of my, uh, through some aspect, and he was with the Treasury Department. And he, and I've always wondered this. I always ask him, because I've always wondered this. Because, you know, we don't hear a lot about it anymore, but, but counterfeiting of money uh, is an incredible thing. I mean, our government is doing it all the time now. But, I mean, but counterfeiting money is an incredible thing. And there are some guys out there who make some really good engravings of plates. And I asked this treasury agent, I said, you know what? I said, I've always wanted to ask this. I says, how do you guys keep up with this stuff? He says, how? I said, how in the world do you keep up? I said, while we're talking right here, there's probably 100 guys out here that are designing plates that look out. I don't know if you know it or not, but when they first come out with color copies, copiers, the digital stuff, there was guys that were running the dollar bills and the $20 bills through their copiers, and you could come out, and at a, if you looked at it, but at a glance in a convenience store or someplace, you couldn't tell it from the real thing. But there's some guys who really take painstaking time to, to cut those dies, to get the right paper, to get everything the way it's supposed to be. And I said, how do you stay up? How do you know that tomorrow somebody isn't going to make something that you've never seen before? How do you guys do that? And he said, well, that's not the way we approach it. He said, we don't study all the bad ones. We just know what a good one looks like. When you really know what a good dollar bill or $20 bill looks like, the phony sticks out like anything. That's the principle. Let the truth of God defend you. Let what you teach defend you. And you've got to have heresies and you've got to have heretics. Otherwise, you'd never know the real deal because it would, all be, it would all be confused. And if you know the principle, then just watch who's doing what and saying what and ask yourself the question in any given situation. Who's doing what Jesus would do? Is that what Jesus would do? You always let them expose themselves by putting you up against the book, but don't ever let them put you up against them. And that's the way you deal with it. That was one of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever gotten. And then there's another reason. And this principle is Proverbs 17, 13. And this is called the law of recompense. 
And this is why you never want to get involved in something like this. You let God defend you, let the book defend you, because at the end of the day, you know, like somebody said one time, when nothing else tells, when nothing else tells, when nobody else tells about any given situation, when nothing tells or nobody tells, in time, time will tell. He says in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 13, Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. Wow. That's called the law of recompense. That's called the law, the fact that you want to bring evil into somebody else's life. The evil's in your own house, and it won't depart. That's an incredible thing. That answers a lot of questions why people's lives and their families and their children are so screwed up when the people themselves claim to be so right with God. It shows you that the law of recompense is nothing that you ever want to play with. Never want to play with. And it's something that under, you understand that the biblical principles, you stay with them. You stay with them. The heart of the righteous studieth the answer, but it's the mouth of the wicked that poureth out evil things. You don't make it between you and them. You make it between them and God and the Word of God. And that's the way you got to do it. Now, here's a really good one. And this is something that you want to use all the time. And this will be in Proverbs 18, verse 13, and Proverbs 25, verses 8 and 9. And also Proverbs 14. It says this, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Then it says in verse Proverbs 25, 8 and 9, Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof, when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself, and discover not a secret to another. Then Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15 says this, The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his goings. You know what the concept is here? There's two sides to every story. Now when you start dealing with people, especially marital relationships, or people in relationship, maybe if they're not married, you're going to find, you're going to find that there's always two sides to every story. You never come to the place where somebody comes in and tells you, well, this is the way it is. There's always two sides to every story. And the Bible principles here tell you that, that he that answereth the matter before he heareth it. Making up your mind before you get all the facts is a tragic thing. You're going to wind up looking like an idiot. I don't know how many times over the years these principles have saved me because somebody would come in and say, well, so-and-so did this, or so-and-so is here, or so-and-so is that. And I would go and try to deal with that issue only to come to find out that that wasn't even a circumstance to begin with. You never, never deal with an issue before you have all your facts. Never. You, you never do. Go, go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof, when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Because it says right there, debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself. You deal with the person straight up, face on. You never make decisions or deal with circumstances about somebody else's life without having all the facts and having all the information at your disposal. And of course, it's an incredible principle that, uh, that you have to follow when you start dealing with people. I've seen counselors, they get into a situation that, that when a husband and a wife come in, they'll immediately... And I, you know, and this has been a thing all my life. You've, I've heard people talk about different counselors. They'll come up and they'll say, well, you know what? This counselor is a woman, so she's going to be more sympathetic toward the woman. 
The guy says, well, this counselor is a man, so he'll be, the wife says, well, she, he'll, be more, he'll be more sympathetic toward, toward the man. See, so we're not going to get a fair shot. Bottom line is this. The principles of the Word of God will be fair to both of you. And it'll lay it out when you use them exactly what you're dealing with and exactly the way that you have to deal with it. That's a great principle. Now, let me give you another one. I'm sure that most of you have found yourself in this scenario at some point or the other. Really, there's two here. And this has to do with, with the thing that, is, that causes more problem between God's people, and that is verbal agreements. That is making deals, co-signing for somebody, or some other agreement that you make uh, that, uh, that winds up causing problems. I don't know how many times I've seen have two Christians come in and they have an issue. And that issue is because that, that, uh, that this guy thought that because this guy was a Christian or this woman was a Christian, that, you know, that the, their word was the bond. Or their word was their bond. You know, there was a time back in the uh, middle of the 1800s when you went into a bank and you had to get maybe a loan for your, your farm or a loan for this or that. And the guy said, well, what kind of collateral do you have to put up? And the guy would say, well, I'm a member of the Methodist Church. And the guy would say, that's good enough for me. And you got your loan based on that because they knew what that church stand, stood for, or Baptist church, or whatever, and they knew what that church stood for, so therefore you got it based on the credibility you had because people who weren't real wasn't involved in those kind of scenarios. Try going to the bank today and getting a house loan or a car loan, and they say, what collateral you have? Well, I'm a member of Old Path Baptist Church. They'll run you out the door so fast they won't what hit you, or any other church. It doesn't work that way anymore. Proverbs chapter 6. My son. In fact, there are six principles in Proverbs alone on this, and there's a number of them throughout the Bible. My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger. Stricken your hand means shake hands. For thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go humble thyself and make sure of thy friend, thy friend. You know what he's saying there? Before you do something like that, you better make sure the guy that you're doing it for is your really friend and what he's saying is going to really come to pass. You better humble yourself and you better make sure that this deal is the real deal. Proverbs eleven fifteen says, He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. You say, well, I knew the guy. No, 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 you thought you knew the guy. See, you thought he was one thing or she was one thing, but in reality it was something else. Let me give you probably the greatest thing I'm going to ever give you today. Maybe this is the greatest thing I ever gave you in our lives together. You want to write this down. Now, I'm going to stop the all get your last note because I want nobody to miss this. <laughs> want to write this down. The word crook starts with C. And the word Christian starts with C. Write that down. You're laughing. Write that down. Years ago, we had some uh, a guy come to a church office, and he had, a, he had a four or five big cartons of, of some kind of books. And he, he brought them in, and I, I said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, we want to deliver these off. We want you to pass these out in the congregation. And I said, well, what are they? He said, well, they're Christian, Christian phone books for businesses. 
In other words, we banded together, and the only people that are in this phone book are Christians because we feel like that, uh, you know, that uh, we only ought to do business with Christians. And everybody in here is, is a Christian. So you can be safe that if somebody needs a car worked on or somebody needs this or somebody needs that, that uh, you could get into this phone book and everybody in here is a Christian. Like that, you know, that's, 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 that's right up there with the Bible, you know. Well, I refused to take them. And he was mad at me. And he said, well, why wouldn't you want these? And I said, well, two reasons. First of all, I said, if the people in our church only go to Christians, how are they ever going to win anybody to Christ? I said, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is the greatest hosings I ever got in my life I got from Christians. I don't want them. I'm not sure he was mad because they didn't take them or mad because they had to load them all back up in his truck. But either way, we didn't take them. I'm going to tell you something. Now, let me give you some principles here. And you know, I, my, my, my philosophy, and I tell you this all the time, if you're in a church, any church, I, just any church, if you're in a church and there's people that, that, that do this or do that, you know what, for your own sake of peace of mind and the way the devil won't get into details, you know, you know what it says down here? You know what it says? Verse 15. He that, uh, Proverbs eleven fifteen. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. Now here it comes. And he that hateth sureship is sure. You only know the way to be sure that you don't get caught in a trap like that? Don't do business with somebody that, that you're associated with. I don't care what church you're in. I don't care. Now, there are exceptions to that, but not very many. And the bottom line is, if you do do business with somebody, get it in writing. Get it in writing. I've had people come in before when somebody said, well, so-and-so owes me this, and he doesn't that. And I said, well, that's fine. And I said, how much, how much does she owe you or he owe you? Well, they owe me for three months' rent, you know, okay. Um, and you, you had a house, yes, yeah, and uh, they needed a place to stay, yes. And so you let them move in, yes. Uh, and because that was, they were Christians, and I thought that I'd rather have Christians in my house. Well, that's the first mistake you made. Christians and crook both start with C. And I said, well, that's fine. I said, uh, let, me see the, let me see your written agreement. Well, we didn't do one. What do you mean you didn't do one? Well, we were Christians, obviously. <laughs> Let me see your written agreement. Well, we didn't write it down. But I want you, the pastor, to fix this. Really? I want you to hold this person accountable. Really? This person owes me three months' rent. Really? What was the rent? Well, the rent was $600 a month. Really? Can I see it in writing? Well, they owe me three months' rent. Really? The bottom line is this. If you don't have it in writing, you don't have anything. Don't you watch Judge Judy? <laughs> oh, you watch Judge Judy. Oh, okay. Don't you watch Judge Judy? You go to small claims court. You know what they do? You got a judge there, but guys, guys who can't work it out. You know what he wants to see? He doesn't want to hear your story. He wants to see your paperwork. He wants to see legally who wrote what down and signed it. Now, if you got a problem with somebody in a church, any church, and you got it documented and you can't get it resolved, take it to the leadership of the church. If you don't have a document, that says it all, see? But you know why we don't do that? We think that that would be, that would be, he might be, she might be offended if I asked them to sign a paper because we're Christians. Really? How does it feel when you're smart? And I don't mean smart like IQ. I mean smart like you're stupid because you made a bad mistake. Write it down. You got, a, you got a problem with somebody, you write it down, take it into the pastor, there's nothing to say. What do you say? I'll tell you what you say. Crook and Christian start with the same word, letter C. There's nothing to say. You never take for granted. You know why you don't? Because human nature inherently will always find, and the devil will always get into the details. 
You think the devil's going to miss any little opportunity he doesn't get to try to bring discord into any church? Problem between two people? I mean, you financially take advantage of somebody, uh, you know, and then you, 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 you say, well, follow me because I'm in charge of this ministry, and they're going to say, yeah, right, I'm going to follow you? How about, you know, how about every time my little, my little grandkids come over, I, I walk in there and, and they, they always, they look at me, you know, and, and, they, and they'll smile and they'll look at me and I say, what are you looking at? I don't owe you any money. <laughs> the devil will always get into details. Your job and my job is to work by principles. These principles and following them cut out the confusion. I don't have to sit and listen to two people tell he says, she says. Just show me the paper. Show me the paper, then show me the money, like they say. Show me the paper, show me the money. It's just that simple. It's nothing that nobody has to argue about back and forth. It's done, it's protected, and it, it's very, it just, the devil will get in every detail. Now let's talk about some principles in general. And this will be issues you face in, in general. And I, I, I deal with them all the time. And some of these you probably already know, but some of them I want to I help you and maybe establish them again for some of you new ones. And this is a good one for new Christians. This is what I call the principle of Lot's wife. I'm gonna, now this one's out of Proverbs, but uh, this is a good one. Genesis chapter 19, verse 20, 23. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zohar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now you know the story here, Sodom and Gomorrah, and God has brought Lot and his family out uh, because he wants to deliver them. Verse 25, And he, God, overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind and became a pillar of salt. Now there's what I call the principle of Lot's wife. And this is the great principle when you start to deal with situations in your own life. This goes along with the companion one that we talked about uh, first. He that a companion of fools is a fool. This one goes along with that. Because this brings up the great principle that when you start to deal with people, no matter what their circumstances are, the bottom line is this. The thing you want to remember, in this particular case is the principle, that the problem here wasn't, wasn't, wasn't uh, Lot and his wife and his family down in Sodom. That wasn't the problem. That appears to be the problem, doesn't it? Because Sodom was a wicked place. But when you read this story and you get the principle involved, the principle here is not, it's not the problem that, that Lot and his family was down in Sodom. The problem was that Lot and Sodom, uh, the Sodom was down in Lot and his family. In other words, changing geographical locations will never solve your problems. Never will. Never will. If you got a problem in your life, you know what, and you think that, and this is what we say, we need to get, I, need to get, I need to get away from it all. Uh, that's what every bank robber says right after he runs out of the bank. <laughs> Does that charge change the situation? No, he's still a bank robber. That's what everybody says when he finds out he gets a letter from the IRS and he owes him $60,000 in back taxes. I got to get away from it all. Running from place to place, from town to town. Does that solve your problem? No. And just like it doesn't solve those problems, when you have a problem in your life, you have something you have to deal with, you can go anywhere you want in life, you can run wherever you want to run, and that problem's going to go with you. Because changing geographical locations will never solve your problem. 
The problem was not getting Lot out of Sodom, but rather the problem was getting Sodom out of Lot. And that's exactly what you've got to understand. And of course, we saw what happened. We saw what happened, just a, what, another chapter, end of this chapter? They get out of Sodom. They get out of Sodom. His wife turns around and turns into a pillar of salt. I was teaching Sunday school one time to a bunch of fourth graders. And I was telling a story about Lot and his wife, and I said, now here's a good story, boys and girls. Lot, Lot when they were all fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's wife, you know, she, she looked behind and, and turned into a pillar of salt. A little kid raised his hand and he says, yeah, I know. He says, my mom was driving down the street. She looked behind and turned into a telephone pole last week. <laughs> Not the same thing, but I understand where you're coming from. Did you ever read that passage? Did you ever read that passage? It says, and Lot's wife from behind. They're up ahead. She's lingering behind. She's lingering behind. Read it. It says, it says, and then, uh, uh, but his wife looked back from behind him. They're up here saying, come on, let's go. She's about, she's about 50 yards back saying, oh, I'm coming. Oh, man, my house, it was everything I wanted. Oh, I just got the new this in it. I had the women's garden party. Oh, it's just uh, oh, a lot. Oh, why we got it? And she looks around and Bang. The problem wasn't the geographical relation she lived in. The problem was Lot, but Sodom was inside her. you got to change about you what's inside you. Running from your problems, going from church to church to church or place to place to place. It sounds convenient, but it just doesn't work. I told somebody this last week. I kept who it was, and I don't think it was even anybody in this church. I said, you know what? You know what you got to do? At some point in your life, I said, you've got to dig a hole, and you've got, to, you've got to sandbag that position, and you've got to wait till Jesus comes back, and you've got to hold the line from right there. You can't be running all over the place and doing everything and, and in essence, doing nothing. That's the whole point. And, of course, that's exactly what that great principle says. Now, let's look at another one. And this is one you'll deal in with. This is the principle concerning anger. Ever been around somebody who has an anger problem? Ever been around someone that has an anger problem or know somebody that's angry all the time? You know, you have to walk on eggshells because you get up in the morning and, and, you know, and I'm not talking about just being a, not being a morning person. I mean, everybody has their little quirks. I mean, uh, uh, some people are good night people. Some people are good morning people. Some people aren't worth anything all day long. I mean, it just, you know, it, it's where you're at. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that somebody that if you just say the wrong thing, it, it's like Hiroshima going off. Disruptive anger, you know. Now, let me just say, oh, you live with Jan. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, okay. Well, you're laughing. Nobody else is just zip quiet and you're over here laughing. I'm just kidding. Now, ang anger by itself. Now, listen to me. Quit laughing. Anger by itself is not a bad thing. Obviously, it's one of the emotions that God gave us and built into us. But anger out of control is a very bad thing. And the principles on it are many in the book of Proverbs and throughout the Bible. You know, Bible anger always has a, or excuse me, biblical anger, listen to me now, biblical anger always has a, a biblical cause or a biblical reason for the anger. And you'll find it defined for you in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, where it says there under the law that he that is angry with his brother without a cause is guilty before the, before the law. 
And you have to have a cause, a biblical cause. Road rage is not a cause. Though I understand. I mean, there's some whack people. Oh, I'll tell you one. You want to know one? I'll tell you one. Last night, we're sleeping. It's hot in the house. Oh, no. Hot in the house. Have the windows open. We didn't put the ceiling fan on. Or the big, whatever that big fan is up there in the stairs that sucks the kids up the radiator. We didn't, we didn't put that on because we were afraid it was going to be a tornado and we didn't want to get killed. But, but we're sleeping. No, 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 no. Across the street in my, in my neighborhood at 3.45 in the morning, I'm sleeping. And in fact, I'm having, having a dream, you know, and, it was, and, and right in the middle of the dream, this, this horn honks. Right across the street. And I'm coming out of my, I'm out of my, I'm coming out of my sleep, you know, and, and I'm laying there and I think, I, I thought it was a dream. And then about two minutes later, and, I, and I'm laying there and, and, you know, Barb's cussing a storm up at this point. Now, you know, she, she gets up, you know, and she, she looks out the window and she says, well, the neighbors across the street are, there's a car parked there with his lights on and he is too lazy to get out to go get somebody. So he's sitting out there at quarter to four honking the horn for them to come out. And about that time she said that, I get up. And I'm thinking to myself, I looked out the window. There, sure enough, was a car sitting there with his lights on right in front of that house, honking that horn for somebody to come out. There isn't, any, there isn't a light on in that house. Now, here's where, you know, I'm just telling you. That's anger with a cause. Now, here's where if you have one of them really neat lasers that goes on a gun, you can really have some fun. <laughs> Road rage is not an anger reason. And I'm not even sure that would have been last night. But we'll never know because right after we fired over their heads, they, they left right away. <laughs> Explosive anger at your spouse. You know, somebody says something and you don't, it, it erupts, you know. People in general or situations in general, you know, it's totally unacceptable. Now, let me give you some great principles on anger. And if you have an anger problem, this is where I would start. I'd put these on a three by five card. Let me show you, let me show you what the Bible says about anger. Proverbs 14, 17. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. And a man of wicked devices is hated. Now, the reason why a man that dealeth foolishly, or deal, is soon angry, dealeth foolishly, is because he, he really looks, maybe not to himself, but to everybody else, he looks stupid. I mean, there's nothing more ridiculous to me than a little boy in a big man's body. There's nothing more ridiculous to me than somebody that is, you know, six foot seven, you know, and, and the epitome of what a man ought to be, but his emotional demeanor is about a four-year-old. And when they don't get what they want, you know, they go off the deep end. They have anger beat up inside of them. And there's always reason for it. But I'm showing you the verses here that are a cause and effect. And women, too. I mean, it's not just men. Women, too. Proverbs 14, 29. He that is slow to wrath 
is of great understanding. Ah, now we begin to see. See, see the see the see the parallel. You see the one says the one says he that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and then it gives you the counter to it. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. See how he changed the word from anger to wrath. Showed you how the thing is is. Oh, it's great. Now here's the best part. He but he that is hasty in, of spirit exalteth folly. And there's Proverbs 25, 28. Look at, look at Proverbs 16, 32. Then we'll come back and put it. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. You see, that's a great verse. It says, it says, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. You know why that is? Because real strength, now listen to me, real strength isn't how much you can bench press. Real strength is you can't, Put a chain on the front of a semi and put it in your teeth and pull it down the road. Real strength isn't how tough you are. Real strength is how much control you have over your emotions. That's real strength. Real biblical strength, anyhow. I mean, that's the restraint. Restraining yourself. And that's why he says, Proverbs 25, that he that hath no rule over his own city, like a, a, a city broken, a spirit has a city broken down without walls. Because real strength is control of your emotions as you rule your spirit. Your spirit doesn't rule you. Look at Proverbs 19.11, another great one. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. Oh, that's a good one. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Wow, look at that. I love that. Two good words there. There's our word discretion. You see, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger. In other words, understanding the situation you're in and how to apply the Word of God to it. I think when we've talked about this before, this is called either react or respond. See? Remember that little thing where when you're faced with something with your wife or, uh, or you're faced with something with your husband uh, and it's an issue, you have two choices to go. You can either respond or you can react. If your wife has a bad day and she says something, you don't, it kind of rubs you the wrong way because you're having a bad day. If you have discretion, if you have discretion, then you... You, look what it says. I mean, I love it. Uh, you have a discretion. It's to your glory to pass over the transgression. You know what the difference between transgression and sin is? Sin, if you go back in the book of Leviticus, you'll have offerings against sin offerings and offerings against transgression offerings. The difference between sin and transgression is sin offerings are always against God. Trespasses are always against man. And this place here, the transgression gets passed over. It's to the man's glory to, to go over it, to pass over it. He, he, he doesn't make a fight about it. And then Proverbs 21, 23. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble. And the key, of course, is having rule over your own spirit. The key is discretion. The creating is knowing when, uh, what to say, attitude versus action, responding versus reacting. Uh, it's the application of biblical principles, knowing when that it's our right to get angry with a cause, a biblical cause, and when it's not. When it's not. Now, since we're talking about anger, let's move into the next one. Because from time to time, when you start dealing with people, you're going to come up against anger, uncontrolled anger. Anger, uh, anger is an incredible thing. It's a powerful emotion. And when it's not kept in check, and it's not kept in check by biblical principles, what happens is something in your life you get angry about that you don't handle the biblical way, you build those things up, and in time it leads to the next stage under anger. Somebody raise your hand. After anger, what is the next stage? What is it? Bitterness. What is it? Bitterness. Bitterness. 
Now we're going to step outside of Proverbs, and I want you to see this one. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Uncontrolled anger leads to bitterness. And let me say something to you. When you see what the Bible says about it, don't ever let yourself go here. The principles are put into your life, given to you into the Word of God, that you construct yourself the way God wants you to be constructed, not the way that uh, most God's people go. Now look at Hebrews 12, verse 15. This is a great verse. Look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now that's a good word. How do you fail? Does that mean you lose your salvation? I'm just going to ask this. I'm not going to go any farther. I just want to see where, where some of you are at. And, and, and just Somebody raise your hand and tell me what you think when it says to fail the grace of God. What does that mean? Raise your hand. Anybody? And if you, nobody knows, that's fine. This is kind of a hard question, but I just want to see. Anybody know what it means right there when it says, any man fail the grace of God? Because it's the key. Oh, if anybody would, yes. They don't give the grace of God. Oh, Rebecca. Hang on to that. She said that they don't give the grace of God. That, that's very good, Becca. Very good. Let's look at this. Just ruined my sermon. I'm done. You can have the rest of the thing. I knew it was supposed to know. Nobody was supposed to know. It's good. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now I want to ask you another question. See if you know this one, Rebecca. Smarty pants, we're going to fix you now. Why does it say, think now, think. Why does it say root of bitterness? You want to try it again? Go ahead. Well, that's true, but that's not the reason. That's, that's true. That's true. But you're wrong. You're wrong, Rebecca. You're wrong. <laughs> you only get one chance to be right. You're wrong. The, and it... She said, because it goes so deep, and that's true. But that's not, that's, that's the truth, but that's not the example. What's the example? Why does he, when it talks about bitterness, why do they use the word root? I mean, they could say, your bitterness goes deep. Why did they use the word root? Anybody want to tell me? And this is a, really a tough one. And only if somebody as smart as I would would know this anyhow. But go ahead, Zach, try it. Um, You're as smart as me, go ahead. No. Show us. Show us all. Stand up, tell <laughs> no. everybody. Come on. <laughs> I was going to kind of point at her. Yeah, point at her over here. Yeah, she's, she's, she's bitter. Go ahead. I was going to piggyback off of what Nikki said. Uh, you know, bitterness is kind of like the, the, the leaves of the roots, which was anger, and it came out like that. Well, that's really good, but that's <laughs> not it. No. Oh, yeah, Joe. Go ahead, Joe. Contagious. Huh? Contagious. That's true, but that's not it either. This is a pure, simple Bible thing. Yes, ma'am. No, no, no. You, you, um, That's true, but that's not it. Go ahead. It sucks out the water of the Word of God out of your life. You've been watching the, the Vegetable Planet or something on TV? You get the, how do you know they suck the water out of the thing? That's, I like that. I'm going to put that in my Bible. Answer is this. It says root of bitterness because in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 31, the devil's likened to a tree. A giant tree. And it shows you that from that tree, which is a picture of Satan, is where bitterness comes into, and then it roots in you. And everything everybody said is true. But the answer is, why is it called a root? Because roots are connected with trees, 
and bitterness is connected with Satan, and Satan is a picture of a tree in Ezekiel chapter 31, other places in the Bible. Now look what this, what it says. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now let's look at this thing. I'm going to show you nine principles of bitterness that's based on the roots of this tree. Now the first thing, and you can use this when you're dealing with people. This is the, this is the behind the scenes answer that gives you an insight into stuff that, that, that helps you figure out what the problem is. And you know what? Once you figure out what the problem is, discernment, then you know how to apply the Word of God, which is called what? Discretion. Now the first thing you learn about the root of bitterness is that it grows under the surface. Roots are always under the surface. You'll find people who pretend everything's okay when it's not. You see, that's the first problem that you get into. I don't know how to impress this upon you, no matter where you're at in life. Pretending you don't have any problems when we all do have problems is your first big mistake in life. I have saw people over the years that, that, that were people who were, you know, that I thought were good leaders. That had the potential to be good leaders. But they become to the point where they think, it almost becomes a thing where they think that if you're a leader and you have problems, that that's a, some kind of weakness in your leadership. The truth of the matter is, we all have problems. You want to know what a weakness in your leadership is? Having weaknesses, but trying to hide them so nobody thinks you do. That's the problem. Because we already know we have them. We already know we have them. And where, root, where bitterness begin to take root is when somebody will not deal with the problem. They won't deal with the issue that they've got to deal with. I told you many, many times, when you have a problem and you know it's a problem, you got the thing you have to do is you have to identify the problem. We talked about this Thursday night. We have to identify the problem. Once you identify the problem, then you isolate the problem. Once you identify the problem and you isolate the problem, what does that mean? It means, okay, I got a problem. I got a problem in my life, and I want to fix that problem. You know what we all like to do? We all say, well, I got this problem, but we don't want to do what we got to do to fix that problem. We kid ourselves into thinking, well, I'm going to learn this, or I'm going to study this, or I'm going to study that, and, and that's going to help me. But the truth of the matter is, if you've got a problem, first thing you got to do is identify that problem. You know the second thing you got to do? You got to isolate that problem. You've got to realize that if you've got a problem with drinking, studying the 70 weeks of Daniel is not going to solve your problem. If you've got a problem with cigarettes, or you've got a problem with marijuana, or you've got a problem with whatever in your life, going over and laying out the book of Revelation is not going to fix your issue. Once you identify the problem, you have to isolate the problem. You have to say, this is my problem. I have now isolated it. Once you identify it, once you isolate it, then you annihilate it. You go after that problem, whatever it may, how long it takes, whatever you got to do, get whatever help you have to get, but you annihilate that problem instead of ignoring that problem and just going on like, oh, I got it, and oh, I'll get it. No, no. You have to identify it, you have to isolate it, and then you have to annihilate it. And nothing else will work. Roots grow under the surface. And the second one goes along with the first one. Roots grow best, best in darkness. See? No Bible applied to it. 
Or you'll apply Bible everywhere but where you need to. You'll study the Bible for everything except what your problem particular in particular is. Roots grow best in darkness. I'll tell you something else. They grow best in dirt. Picture of your flesh. I'll tell you something else. They grow swiftly and silently. You never hear a tree grow. In fact, most people you know, come to the point where there's a tree, you know, and they plant it in the backyard when the kid's little on Arbor Day or something like that, you know, and, and everybody goes on with life and nobody thinks about it. And one day, you know, 20 years later, you come out in the backyard and there's a tree. A tree doesn't announce its growth. In fact, the next one goes right along with this one. It, uh, each day, uh, it grows stronger. When you have a problem or an issue in your life, and I don't care what it is, but when you have an issue in your life that you're not willing to take care of, don't you think for a second, this is where a lot of people make a mistake, don't you think for a second that your problem just stays where it's at. Every day it gets worse. You may not see it, you may not understand it, you may not know it. Every day it will get worse and a little more embedded than it was the day before. It not only grows swiftly and silently, it grows each day, it grows stronger. I'll tell you something else, too. It keeps growing deeper every day. There's never a place that roots of a tree stop growing. As long as it, something doesn't intervene, it keeps growing deeper, and it keeps getting stronger, and it keeps growing swiftly. And I'll tell you the seventh thing. The more contaminated the dirt, other issues in your life that you're not willing to deal with, it will just fertilize the ground and make the root of bitterness grow even more and even deeper. I'll tell you something else. The eighth thing. In time, it will attach itself to everything in its path. If you've got an older house, we lived in Ohio, we had an old house that I was born in basically and my parents lived there from before the, around the war. And uh, when we lived there in the 70s, you know, twice a year I could count on calling out Roto-Rooter. And he'd do one thing. He'd run that big old snake down that sore thing, tore it back up, nothing would work. And you could always tell it because the sore downstairs would start talking to you. It'd start bloop, 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 bloop. It was time to get the Roto-Rooter man out. He'd run that snake down there, run it all the way out to the street and bring it back. You know what he brought back every time? Tree roots. Tree roots. You know why? Those tree roots penetrate right into that pipe. I've seen them move rocks. I've seen them tie, get around rocks. I've seen them break through a person's foundation on their house. Let me tell you something. In time, in time, the roots of bitterness will attach itself to everything in its path and everything, that, everything in your life. Your life will completely be just taken over by the concept of the roots of that bitterness and it will affect every aspect of your life. The last thing, you plant a new tree. A year later, two years later, go out and pull it out. You plant a tree and let it down for 20 years, just try to get it out. Just try to get it out. The longer you wait to fix your problem, the more impossible it becomes to, to fix it. You know why? Because the root of bitterness, the root of bitterness, which comes from a gigantic tree, Ezekiel chapter 31, that all the birds of the air love to lodge in. 
Because that tree and the roots that come from that tree get down so deep and so far and get in everything in your world and everything in your life that it affects everything you do. And I want you to see, I want you to see the last part of verse 15. I'm going to read the whole verse again. Look in diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, watch it, and thereby many be defiled. It just doesn't affect you. It'll affect your family. It'll affect your children. It'll affect everything. It'll affect the people you work with. It'll, try to, it'll affect the entire people in every aspect of your life. We all know the great movie Forrest Gump. What a hoot that is to watch. We all know the famous line that we've heard many, many times. Life is like a box of chocolates. Well, how true that is. Because, you know, when you get those big boxes of chocolate, you never know what you're getting. And the great story, line in that thing was, <coughs> life is like a box of chocolates. You just never know what you're going to get. And I've always thought about that and thought to myself, you know what? <clears throat> Even more than that, life is a box of 88 crayons. Remember them big boxes of crayons your kids used to get? Used to have big, had a crayon sharpener in the back? <laughs> Flipped it up. 88 colors. And really, that's what life really is. Because you go through life... <coughs> And you color life. <clears throat> and you color the blues and the reds and the pinks and the whites and the yellows <clears throat> and the greens and all of the things. And you take that box of crayons and that box of crayons is really what you make life to be. Your life is as joyful and as happy as as many crayons as you're using to color it today. But you know what bitterness does? With bitterness you only have, it takes all the 87 away and you only have one crayon. And it's a dark black charcoal. And you cover everything in life in time with that one color. Everything you see, every circumstance you find yourself in, you'll go through your life for five years and 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. Something that happened 35 years ago in your mind when everybody else has forgot about it will be as fresh as tomorrow's newspaper. And every circumstance you see and everything you find yourself in, you will color it with that crayon because it's a root. And a root, that's why he chose the word root, because it's a root, and that root comes from a tree. And it's going to trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, what's the answer? Well, Rebecca ruined my message. <laughs> but that's true, Rebecca. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. You know what? We all have things we could be bitter about in life. I have things I could be bitter about in life. I have things that were, that, that in from my life, all through my life, that injustices, things that were done wrong, things that, that I could look at and be bitter. But you know what? And we all have those. I mean, nobody is here this morning that doesn't have, have been through some trials in life. We've all been through them. We've all went through issues. But you know what I've learned? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it simply says, and this is about the greatest advice you'll ever, anybody will ever give you. It says, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Now that's a great principle. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Don't carry something around forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You know what bitterness starts with? Bitterness starts with you thinking somebody did an injustice to you. And maybe they did. Maybe what happened to you or what somebody did to you, maybe it was absolutely not your fault. Maybe it was half your fault. 
Maybe it was all your fault. Maybe it was none of your fault. Maybe you were a totally victim in the thing and it was absolutely none of your fault. But the truth of the matter is, the virus says, but the truth of the matter is, the virus says, the failure of the grace of God. And she said it. The failure of the grace of God for a child of God is you not exercising the same grace that God gave you to the person who hurt you. You know how I deal with keeping from being bitter about things in life? Anybody in life? You know why I could never be bitter? I could never let, I mean, I'm the kind of guy that, you know what, you could, you could well, you couldn't shoot my dogs. That would be a little problem, but uh, we, we'd have to talk about that. But, but I, I don't know of anything in my life other than maybe hurting one of my family or hurting somebody in my family close to me. I don't know of anything in my life that, that I couldn't just walk away from and in and, and, and 15 minutes we'd go out to eat together and, and be done with it. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because I know how many times in my life I've screwed God. And that's our problem. We think it's our right for us to sh give God the shaft, don't we? You know the old sharp stick right in the eye? We think it's okay for us to do that. We think it's okay for us to just turn our back on God. We think it's all right for us to sham God. We think it's all right to hurt. You know what it means, really, from a biblical sense, to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? You know how badly sometimes we hurt God? Do you know how desperately God wants you and me to be what He wants us to be and how it hurts Him and crushes Him and grieves Him? Can you grasp the concept of, of God being grieved? Have you ever been grieved? Do you know what that means when you lose a loved one and you grieve and you feel like an empty hole in your stomach and you don't want to eat, you don't want to do anything, you just sit around and grieve? Can you imagine God doing that because you and I caused His grief? But what does God do? Forgive you, no heartbeat. Is there anybody here, anybody at all, anybody here that God shouldn't have killed us before we got saved? Anybody? I don't think you heard my question. I said, is there anybody that God should not have killed? Yeah, okay. Well, I know you're caught up in the excitement of my great, tremendous preaching. I understand that. I caught up in it myself. I have my hand up. Is there anybody? We all should be dead. Is there anybody deserved not to be in hell burning, screaming your lungs out this morning? Anybody? Anybody? Is there anybody here in this room or across this city, if it's a saved person, is there anybody that shouldn't be just down there with a rich man in hell worrying about your family going to come to hell and worrying about all the things that, 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 that people out there, your mom and your dad and your kids are all going to come sliding down that big chute. I don't know how to get into hell. But sliding down that big chute and landing a lake of fire, hitting the fire, screaming and rolling and, and, and agony for all. Is there anybody here that we should not, that should not be our end? You know why it's not? It's because grace. It's because when God looked at us in our holiness and we were so unholy and all the things that we did that were despicable before God, do you realize what God killed people for in the Old Testament? Let me tell you something. It was a lot less than some of us have done. I remember one time they were walking down there with the ox cart and it was just on the thing and the thing began to shake and oh Uriah, good man as he was, put his hand up there and God killed him. Whoa, I'm going to stay in bed in the morning. God kill him for something like that. What will he do to you and me? The failure of the grace of God. You have to get the proper perspective of your situation. In other words, you need to get over it. You need to realize that just as somebody has wronged you, oh, come on, and you've never wronged God? And God forgave you? My goodness, what is this Christianity thing about anyhow? 
You get over it. You get the proper perspective on the situation. You, don't, you learn not to take it personal. If you can't shake it off, then get the help that you need. Get the, get the principles. Isolate the problem. Get it down. And in time, you'll view everything the way that it's supposed to be. In other words, instead of viewing everything with that one crayon. Now, I want to move in quickly here in the last five, ten minutes to world events. The third section. And this is how I deal with life. Never in the history of man has the world so rapidly changed as it has in the last five years. I, I, I just, I, I can't believe it myself. People are afraid. People are angry. I mean, you can see the tea parties that people are having all across the country. People are uncertain. People are confused. People feel betrayed. It seems our whole system has just fallen down around our shoulders. Hey, you know what? <clears throat> Let me put it into perspective for you. I read a book about 25 years ago. And it really put the thing in perspective for me. It was called, our, this is the name of the book, our, as best I can remember, <clears throat> Our Country. Now, this was written in 76 or 72. Our Country in Perspective. The Death of Our Nation. That was the name of the book. It was based on two principles found in the Bible. And in that book, to me, even though the world was nowhere then as it is now, I've never forgotten that book. I've never forgotten the notes I took of that book. I still have them in my Bible. <clears throat> and it is, it is the thing that puts the world events in perspective for me that I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be confused. I don't have to feel betrayed. I don't have to be uncertain. I don't have to attend a tea party. I don't have to, unless it's one where you have a little stuff you eat with it. You know, I don't have to be afraid and I don't have to be angry. The two principles he talked about, first one was in Psalm chapter 9, verse 17. And it simply says there, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. The second one is found in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. Oh, this is a great one. It says that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You know, in the Bible, <coughs> your Bible is likened to salt. And the reason why it's likened to salt is because salt is what we use to preserve things. Salt is a preservative. And when you begin to look and understand, he stated this, and it was an incredible statement. He stated that no nation in the history of man, no nation on planet Earth, has ever survived 200 years of history past the point where they dumped the Word of God. It was one of the most incredible, fascinating books I have ever read in my life. I have never forgotten that. And then he listed the nations. He just didn't make the statement. He showed how that, <coughs> he showed how that when Israel, <coughs> when, God, <coughs> when, when Israel turned its back on, the, on, uh, on God, and God began to, uh, that they did not last 200 years before God split those nations. He showed, he showed how that in Europe, <coughs> that every country on the continent of Europe, except two, except two nations. And there's a reason why those two nations never got the Bible. But every nation on the continent of Europe, <coughs> except two, had the Word of God. And in less than 200 years after they dumped the Word of God, everyone was on a trash heap. And he showed the perspective of America, the death of a nation, based on the fact that when you have the Bible, the Bible is the salt that preserves your country. 
And when you dump the Bible, God dumps you. And where righteousness exalts the nation, it is sin that is, is, is a repose to any people. In America, my friend, American Christianity rejected the Bible officially in 1888. We have now been 120 years without a Bible. And you see the fulfillment of Psalms 9.17 and Proverbs 14.34 coming to pass, along with many other principles. But my, it, it's the bottom line. Once the church, once this country lost the salt, the Bible, once it did, there was a time when the Bible was taught in school. There was a time in court when you put your hand on it. There was a time when and everybody in this country, shaved and lost, realized there was a God and reverenced the Bible as a supernatural spiritual book. Now even God's people today don't even believe that about it anymore. And you wonder what's wrong with this country? I'll tell you in a heartbeat what's wrong with it. Righteousness exalts the nation, but sin is a, re, is, a, is a reproach to any people. And we've lost the salt that preserved this country. And because of that, we're living in a world today where Isaiah chapter 59 verse 14 says, The judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. We're living in a world that is completely backwards. Isaiah 5, verses 20 and 21 said, Woe to them that call evil good, and good evil, and put darkness for light, and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. That's where we're at. That's exactly where we're at. How did we get there? We lost the preserving salt of the Word of God, which exalted any nation. And then we wonder why where we're at. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And I want you to know, we're in the middle of a famine today, but I also want you to know, it wasn't the fact that the Bible wasn't here, it's the fact that he says the hearing of the word of God. Nobody hears it anymore. Nobody hears it anymore. You say, what's wrong with our country? What's wrong with our leaders? How in the world can we get, how in the world does a country extend that if you don't pay your income taxes, you go to jail? But if you're a senator or a congressman or somebody in high official and you forget to pay yours, it's just an oversight. You know how those things happen? You know how you can be slippery on both sides and do everything in the world and get away with it? I'll tell you why. Because Psalms 12, 8 says, The wicked walk on every side when the vilest of men are exalted. That's the problem in our country. How did that happen? How did that come to pass? It came to pass because righteousness exalted the nation. Now when a salt has lost its savor, there is no preserving this country. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 says, Evil men understand not judgment. Oh my God, what a great truth. No concept of God's judgment today. No hell. No hell. No, I, I was watching a thing last night. I've heard it from World War II. I was watching a thing last night on the History Channel, or, or yeah, this Military Channel, on Korea, uh, the Forgotten War. What a great concept that was. Don't find much more about it. But they said the same thing. Some old vet on there, and I heard a guy from Iwo Jima say it one time. He said, you know what? When I die, I'll never have to worry about going to hell. 
He said, in, on Iwo Jima, as in Korea, it was the worst time that anybody could ever have. It was literally hell on earth. And I'll never have to worry about going to a place called hell because when I get to heaven, to St. Peter, I will tell another Marine reporting, sir, I've served my time in hell. It sounds really cute, and it probably looks good on the back of a jacket. It just isn't right biblically. Let me tell you something. Hell is God's judgment for sinners and the world in the afterlife. War is God's judgment for sin and ungodliness in this present life. And you better get it down. How many say, what about all the global warming? And what about this? What about that? And what about all the stuff that's happened? Don't you know this world's got a curse on it? It ain't going anywhere but down. It's righteousness that exalteth the nation. All the natural disasters that take place. I remember when 9-11, some bold preacher got on the radio and made a statement that it was God's judgment for America, dumping the word of God. They wanted to run him out of town on a rail. How, how, how shortly we forget that in the Old Testament, God brought natural disasters. He had the whole earth open up and 100,000 of them fall down. He brought plagues on them. He brought diseases on them. He sent other nations over to whack the fire out of them. That's what he did to his people. Boy, we sure fall short from where it was then from where it is now. You know why that is? Because evil men understand not judgment, that's why. When American Christianity dumped the Bible, this country lost its preserving salt of God's Word that exalts any nation. And now we have no value system. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Truth has fallen in the streets. And there's a famine in this nation, and there's a famine in Christianity. I'll tell you what, you want to pick at somebody, don't go down to Jeff City. You want to pick at somebody, don't get a tea party to the government. You know how this thing started? It started not for the government. It started because God's men and God's pulpits across this country quit preaching the book. Pick at churches. That's where you better go. Now I'm angry with the cause now. Whoa, I love it. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto men. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 19, 21 says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. You know how stupid God's people are today? We actually think that, there's, that, that, that if you're a liberal, you know, like Obama or Nancy Pelosi or Diane Feinstein and, or Barney Franks, you know, that, that that's a, you're a terrible person. But if you're a conservative like George Bush, Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly or Glenn Beck or Fox News, and, that you're a good person. We think that the Democrats are demon-possessed and, and God's a Republican. Well, I got news for you. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he didn't do it on the back of an elephant. You figure that one out. But that don't make him a Democrat either. We get the idea that the liberals are bad and the conservatives are good. Listen to me. Listen to me. Let me tell you something. God's form of government is not a democracy. God's form is not capitalism. I mean, what don't you know about the Bible? Don't you know in the book of Ecclesiastes, don't you know that, that he lays it out? He, said, he talks about capitalism in Ecclesiastes 5.13. He talks about socialism in 6.2. He talks about communism in 4.1. He talks about the progressive modern movement in 9.7 and liberalism in 11.9. You know what he says about them? They're all vanity. God's program isn't, isn't a conservative program. God's program isn't a liberal program. God's program is a theocracy where God is king and runs righteousness. We get caught up in that. Listen, conservative principles without God and the Word of God is just as bad as liber uh, the, the liberals without God without the Word of God. 
It's not about your position. It's not because you make some good quality choices that look good. What's the, what's the end of the day for you? Where are you at with the Bible and God? This, the Bible is supreme in your life. God's form of government is a theocracy where God is king. You ever figure out the difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming? You know why God's not going to come back the second time the way he came the first time? Put yourself in that position. Let's say Jesus came back and showed up in the UN. Let's say Jesus showed up in Washington. Let's say that the second coming of Christ comes when and God says, well, I'll come the second time just like I came the first time. And now these people are modern now. They've grown up. They've got, they've got science on their side, and they've, they've come a long way, and they've got the great theological studies. I'm going to show up. And he shows up in Washington. Now let me tell you something. He showed up in Washington. He walked into the White House. Showed up in Russia. Went into the Kremlin. Showed up anywhere in the world. Let's just take America. That's a Christian nation. Walked into the Senate and the Congress and said, you're all fired now. I'm here, and I'm going to run it. You think they'd be happy? You think he'd be happy? How about if he walked into the president's office and says, on your way, bud, I'm taking over now. I'm going to run the world. Think he'd be happy? You think they're all just waiting for Jesus to come back and run this thing and just kind of holding the store together until he gets here? Hey, how about if he went to his first churches he went to? You think the Jehovah Witnesses would like him because he'd have to tell them they weren't part of the 144,000 anymore? How charismatics wouldn't like him because Jesus never spoke in tongue, now did he? The Catholics wouldn't like him. He wouldn't give Mary or do. Hey, don't get high and high about it. Baptist churches wouldn't like him either because they don't even use the Bible that was his. You know what they do? If Jesus came the second time like he came the first time, it would be the same results. They'd crucify him in 15 minutes. They'd drag him outside of Washington. They'd drag him outside of Moscow. You think the Jews are going to accept him if we went back over there right now and said, Here I am! Hey, it's all a religious, political, hodgepodge, and goobly gawk that everybody is running this world wants to pretend we're going to do what's right. They don't care about you or me or anybody except themselves. There's only one man, one man who cares about you. And he's the one that cares about you right now, who lives inside you right now, who wants to give you the best right now, and is going to give you the best right then when he comes back. And if Jesus Christ came back now, this time, like he did the first time, they would throw him out of the city, they would crucify him, they would label him everything that they label you, and they would kill him. So you know what? He ain't coming back the second time that way. When he comes this time, he's come with the eyes of the flame of fire, and on a vesture written, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and he's going to kick the fire out of everybody on planet Earth. You better find out what side you're on. That's what's wrong with this country. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, Evil men understand not the judgment of God, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. Do we? That great principle says we should. You see, the principles of God give you understanding in all things. People, life, and the country you live in. And then he tells you in Proverbs 20, verse 18, for you and for me, that every purpose is established by counsel and with good advice make war. Now I'm going to leave you with one last principle. And this is my principle. This is my favorite principle for life. I read this every day of my life. 
This is the deal for me. And maybe it'll mean something to you. But this, let this be the foundational passage in your life in Bible principles. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Now this is my prayer for you. This is what you ought to be doing. You ought to be looking at everything that this church is involved in through one purpose. How much in these last moments of this last time, whether it's volleyball or softball or whatever we're doing or whatever's going on, it ought to be looking at it from the aspect we've got to get everybody in and get as many saved of the lost as we can because our time is running out no matter what means we must do it by. And here is the key, the key is principles. Proverbs 22, verse 17, Bow down thine ear. And apply the words of the wise. And apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For is it a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee? They shall withal be fitted in thy lips. That thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. Oh, here it comes. Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge? Yes, you have, Lord. Verse 21. Why? that I might make thee to know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that sent unto thee. You know what he just told you? He gave you that book. He gave you those principles. He gave you this church. He gave you a pastor that has one goal in his life for you, even though you may have other goals in life for yourself. You know what that is? My job is onefold. It is to help you know of a certainty the words of truth in a world where there is no truth. And to get you ready. It goes right back to where we started. Right back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you. He says in verse 21 that I might make thee to know the certainty of the words of truth. Why? That thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. He says if there's somebody out there that wants the truth, I want to be able to send you to them. When there's a man that has a, wants an answer for why you are the way you are, he sees the contrast in your life from the world. I want to send that man to you. Notice the four points you got to have for that to happen. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord. First thing is sanctify. you got to get set apart from the world. And you got to get the Bible in your life, and you better get your career straightened out. Your career is not about what you want to do in life. That's the means by which you make your money to feed your face that you can fulfill God's plan for your life. You better get that straight. And the only way you get that straight is to sanctify the Lord God of your heart. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? What's the point? What's the purpose? Why did you bother to come here this morning? To listen to this verbal rant and rage for this abuse that so adversely affects your spirit this morning. Why are you here? 
The only reason you should be here is because you have a desire to learn the certainty of truth and you want to start by sanctifying the Lord in your heart, getting everything else aside. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready. Here's the second thing you're here for. You're here to get ready. You're here on Thursday night to get ready. You used to come to the institute so you could be ready. You have one goal in your life. In the days that we live, only one. It's to be ready. It's to be ready. It's to sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready. Ready for what? Ready to give an answer. Not by what you say. Not even by what you do. But what you are when nobody's looking. You can't have your guard up all the time. And the Bible says that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's somebody always watching your life. And the principles, this great verse, is that God wants to make you to know the certainty of the words of truth. That thou mightest answer the words of truth. You got to sanctify. You need to be ready. You need to have an answer. So that when a man will ask. That's how God will use your life. The reason why he won't put people in your life. That you can give the certainty of the words to. Very frankly. You're not sure of them yourself. Not by what you say academically. Intellectually. But how you live it. You see, you live, you, you, you do what you say, but you live what you are. And that's what people see. The games we play, the funny little skits we put on in life, to pretend we're spiritual when you know you're not, all the little fun things you like to put out there to pretend. That, but the bottom line is, at the end of the day, it all comes down to what God is doing with your life. How you're letting Him use you. And is He using you? And the people that God's putting into your world. I see people all the time, talked with all my life. You know what? They go through their whole life, and today they want to really be used of God, and next week they get a better deal. And then they'll get back with another group over here, you know, and they'll pull them away, and then they'll come back, and then they'll get a shock revelation, you know, and then they'll come back and want to be used of God again, and then they'll get pulled back. I, I, you know what? That's got to be the hardest way to live a life that I could ever think of. Don't, don't, isn't there, isn't there anybody left on this planet isn't there anybody left on this planet that knows right from wrong, that knows what's right, that has any discernment or discretion or understanding, that knows what's right and is just willing to sanctify the Lord in your heart and put it all aside and just in these last days just take a simple stand for Him with not only what you say and what you do but what you are? I may not be your best friend today. And I may not. You may not like what I say. You may take offense to it. I may not be your best friend today, but I want to tell you a dying truth. When you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and you remember our sermons, our Thursday nights you don't bother to come to, all the things that you put in front of everything else you do, when you stand there at the judgment seat of Christ, you know what God's going to say? He, was said, I, he said, I am a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And you're going to come to the realization that, you know what, I was your best friend. Because I don't tell you what you want to hear. I'm not like some of your friends. Some of your friends will tell you what you want to hear because they want you to be like them. 
I won't tell you what you want to hear. I'll tell you what the book says because someday you're going to stand and you're going to be judged by it. And you will never, you will never, you will absolutely never point your finger at me and say, he didn't tell me the truth. I'm not your best friend today. I will be on that day. Don't you see what's going on around this world? Don't you see that the last grains of sand or drilling through the hourglass of God Almighty. Why? Why do you insist on being so indifferent to the power and the majesty and the ministry that God has for you? Principles. They will make you or they will break you, but you will never live in the middle. You either live by them or you'll live against them. But you will never be in the middle. That exists in your mind. Jesus said, he that are not with me is against me. It doesn't get any simpler than that. And I implore you, I'm telling you, you better realize that that great verse says, he gave you great things that you might know the certainty of the words of truth that you might do something with them. Every head bowed and every eye closed.